0: Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics. I'm your host, Blaine Dollar. Today may be a short podcast. My allergies are acting up this week. I don't know how long my voice is going to last, so you'll probably hear it fading by the end of the episode. Today's topic is Firestorm and his elemental transmutation abilities. And this is a topic that was suggested by Fractures Fractures of the Horizon Labs Facebook group. So let's take a look at Firestorm. He's one of the DC characters. We will be covering more DC characters in the future, Up to this point, most of the suggestions have been Marvel, and most of my own collection and the characters I'm familiar with are also from Marvel, but we'll try to cover whatever people ask me to cover. So the way Firestorm's powers officially work is that he has the ability to transmute any element into any other element and rearrange them in their molecules, so he can turn any object into any other object, provided they have comparable mass. So today we're going to explore what that means in terms of having comparable mass, in terms of how the molecular rearrangements would work and what's involved, and find out if the ability is feasible, at least as as far as the way it's presented. So this power is basically rooted in alchemy, which is the first part of of the science. Way back before Mendeleev developed the periodic table, and people recognized what were elements and what were compounds, Especially when people believe that there was only four elements that everything was made of, and that's the earth, wind, water, fire. If you're only working with earth, wind, water, and fire, and you feel everything is these elements in different proportions, then it would make sense that some of the chemical transformations you're seeing are rebalancing these four elements. Because of that, there were people who were striving to turn any random element we could identify into any other element that we could identify. So turning lead into gold and things like this. When Mendelev developed a periodic table and people realized there's a whole lot more than four elements out there, then they backed off on this. When they realized that lead and gold were distinct elements, well, they decided that there's no way to turn one into the other and gave up. Well, Mendelev's periodic table was a very good starting point. It wasn't the periodic table we see today. Mendelev's table was arranged more like a checkerboard with rules for how things go horizontally, vertically, and on the diagonals. It was good enough to predict the Existence of a few elements that hadn't been identified yet, but it wasn't the arrangement we have today. That arrangement came later through the work of Wolfgang Pauli and Paul Dirac. So Dirac was the one who actually rearranged the table after Pauli figured out the exclusion principle that led to better understanding of electron orbits and its available electron orbits that are the fundamental principle behind the way the table's organized today. So the electrons in atoms are arranged in shells and subshells. And the lowest energy shell, so the one that the electrons are most likely to be in, has space for two electrons. Because so the poly exclusion principle is what determines that electrons cannot share orbits. So we need to figure out how many orbit, or how many electrons each orbit can hold. The first shell can hold two, which is why there are two elements in the first row of the periodic table. The next shell can hold eight, which is why there's eight elements in that row. The one after that holds eight, the one after that holds eighteen, and so forth. So the number of elements in a given row on the periodic table is a direct result of the number of shells or the number of electrons that can fit in the corresponding shell. So understanding that helped us better arrange the periodic table and they talked about the atoms for each element. Atom meaning indivisible. They didn't quite understand the way the nucleus was structured. This was before Rutherford's work. It was, well actually technically it was Rutherford's grad students who collected all the data but it was Rutherford who realized how to interpret it in that the atoms are not just things with electrons embedded in them in this goo or what they call the plum pudding model. In the plum pudding model, the elements were this consistent goo and they had already discovered electrons. JJ Thompson had discovered that. So they thought the electrons were stuck in it like plums in plum pudding, hence the name plum pudding model. It was Rutherford and his team that had the combined efforts of realizing that's not the case. We don't have this plum pudding goo. We've got mostly empty space and this super dense nucleus in the middle. And then it wasn't until the 1930s that Chadwick discovered different isotopes. So at this point, people had realized the amount of positivity or the number of protons in this nucleus. The positive charge on the nucleus determined what element it was. Chadwick was the one who discovered neutrons through the use of isotopes, he realized that there's electrically neutral elements in there too. And that as long as the total number of positive elements or particles in each nucleus was the same, then it was chemically identical, even though from a nuclear perspective, it isn't. As I said, that was the 1930s. It was 1905 when Einstein published the special theory of relativity that recognized the connection between matter and energy. So that's when we realized matter can be converted into energy and vice versa. It's the classic E equals MC squared. That's actually a footnote in a 150-page paper. The theory of relativity is much, much bigger than that. But that's the part most people are familiar with because that's what turns matter into energy, which is what drives nuclear processes, including the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So how does this relate to Firestar? Well, he would need to be able to change one element to another. So we have to ask ourselves, is that possible? Well, we've discovered that yes it is you can't do it through chemical methods that the alchemists were using where you just mix compounds at room temperature or slightly higher and stir them up that's not going to do the job and the reason that's not going to do the job is that there are four forces in nature and you need to use some of the other forces to get this done so the four forces in nature are well two of them are usually familiar to most people one of them is the force of gravity it is actually by far the weakest force in nature, which is why we need something the size of a planet before we notice it. But every object with mass has a gravitational attraction to every other object with mass. You know, When you have a hard time pulling yourself away from the computer, that's not gravity. We don't notice the force of gravity between ourselves and our computers. The second force in nature is the electromagnetic force. Electricity and magnetism are really different aspects of the same thing. So that's a connected force or a unified force, as they call it. That is what determines a lot of chemistry, Because it's the electrons shifting in their orbits that's a chemical reaction. So that's what the alchemists were doing. That's not what we can use to change one element into another. We change elements from one into another using either the weak or strong nuclear forces, which are the other two forces in nature. Most natural decay processes, so uranium decaying or the decay that's used in carbon dating, that happens with the weak nuclear force. The nucleus is bound together by the strong nuclear force. Now, the reason we call these nuclear forces is because they have a limited range. The weak nuclear force is about the range of one angstrom, or 10 to the negative 10 meters. So it takes 10 billion angstroms to make one meter. And one meter is a little bit more than a yard for the imperial listeners. That's so about 40 inches. So that's a rough ballpark. A meter is defined precisely as 100 centimeters. And the official standard definition of the inch Is 2.54 centimeters so you can use that to figure out the exact length of the meter in inches if you'd like the weak nuclear force as i said has a range of about an angstrom the strong nuclear force has a much smaller range than that it's 10 to the minus 15 meters so you need 100 thousand of these to make one angstrom and there's 10 billion angstroms in one meter So it's a very, very limited space for the force. This is part of the reason the periodic table tops off a little over 100 and why a lot of the larger elements are unstable. We need that strong nuclear force to bind things together and overcome the electrostatic repulsion of having all those positive particles in there. Not necessarily the protons themselves. Protons and neutrons are each made up of three quarks. And a nucleus is actually all these quarks combined into a bit of a soup. But if the nucleus grows too large, then the strong nuclear force can't hold one side relative to the other. The electrostatic repulsion from the two extremes really starts to push and you don't have that compensating strong force. As a result, the nucleus tears itself apart. And that's a large reason why that we have that limit on the size of a nucleus and why there seem to be only so many protons we could jam in there. Yet you'll hear about particle accelerators creating new particles or new elements and discovering them in the lab. None of them are stable. They tear themselves apart shortly, so we just jam them together, And keep them there long enough to measure them specifically and find out exactly what we've got. But that's all we have. So creating the upper level elements or the higher atomic number elements with the more protons or more groups of quarks that form protons takes a lot of energy, not just to create, but to maintain. What this does mean is that we can change one element to another. The fact that protons and neutrons are made up of quarks, specifically a proton is two up quarks and one down quark. The up quarks having each a positive two-thirds of the elementary charge, the elementary charge being the charge on the electron or the proton, and the down quarks having negative one-third charge. So a proton with two ups and one down has a total of one elementary positive charge. A neutron has one up and two down for a net charge of zero. Now these up and down quarks, if you just take the mass of two ups and a down and add them up, you don't get the mass of a proton, not even close. If you take two downs and an up and add those up, you do not get the mass of a neutron. Again, it's not even close. We see the mass of the proton and neutrons as they are because of what we call binding energy. It takes energy to keep these things close to each other. There's the strong nuclear force. There's an attraction there, just as there's an electrostatic attraction between the up and down quarks, and this energy holds them in place. But that E equals mc squared still applies. Believe it or not, that energy has inertia. We were often taught through newtonian mechanics that mass and inertia were interchangeable so the amount you have to push on something to change its momentum or change its direction was related to its mass that's actually related to its inertia and both mass and energy contribute to that inertia in newtonian mechanics they are identical in the post-einstein days we realized they are not mass and inertia are distinct quantities so that e equals mc squared that m which we refer to as mass should actually be the total inertia Of the system. So when these particles are in there with their binding energy, that energy can fluctuate, which is why if you pull out your periodic tables and figure out the mass of, say, a helium atom. So that helium nucleus, if you have a helium 4 nucleus and measure its mass, in theory, that's two protons plus two neutrons. But you'll find the mass of the helium nucleus is actually less than the total mass of two protons and two neutrons. That's because we don't have two distinct protons and two distinct neutrons in that nucleus, what we have are six up quarks and six down quarks. And they've rearranged into a new compound with a new binding energy. And that helium-4 nucleus is stable, meaning in the long term, it's not going to pull itself apart. It's going to stay as is. Now, in quantum mechanics, anything that can happen does. The rate at which it happens is just determined by the probability of the event. If there is a lower energy state, then there is some probability that the particles you have are going to release some energy and fall down into that lower energy state. That's what we call unstable or radioactive compounds. So they're spitting out extra particles, and that's the form the energy takes. They change into a different kind of particle, change into a different kind of nucleus. In the case of the helium atom, if the mass or inertia of that helium atom was less than the mass or inertia of four isolated particles, two protons, two neutrons, or some combination of them, then there is some chance that it would fall apart. And that's radioactive instability. Two protons and two neutrons have less mass in the helium nucleus. That's why they are stable. If you have a helium-3 nucleus with two protons and one neutron, that's very unstable. It actually takes less energy to have one proton and two neutrons. So it's entirely possible that one of the electrons orbiting that nucleus will be captured by that nucleus, change the total charge, and it rearranges itself. It's spitting out neutrons and the excess energy in other forms. Or sorry, not spitting out neutrons, spitting out neutrinos and the excess energy in other forms. So that's the rule for stability. You've got to be able to shift it into lower energy states. That also means if you want to take that helium nucleus and break it apart, and then rearrange those protons and neutrons into a new nucleus, you're probably going to have to put more energy into the system to make that happen. So when Firestorm is rearranging two objects, turning one object into a different object of equal mass, that's what he's got to be doing, is taking all these nuclei and all these particles, releasing the binding energy that's holding them together by adding energy in, and then he's got to be reabsorbing that energy when they recollapse. The question is, can he consistently do this and have things with identical mass to what he started with? And the answer is no, because every nucleus and every combination there has a slightly different binding energy than the rest. So if everything had equal binding energies, if that mass of the helium nucleus was identical to the mass of two protons and two neutrons, and the mass of lithium was identical to three protons and three neutrons, then there's no reason he couldn't take three helium nuclei and make two lithium nuclei and just have it be a total wash with exactly the same mass. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So there's got to be some other energy changes going on. Some of that can happen in the electron orbits themselves. It takes energy to bind the electron into the nucleus and put it in these orbits. The energy of electron orbits is tiny compared to the energy of a nucleus and that binding energy. So that's not really a practical way to look at it. The electron orbits, if he can change the nuclei, changing the electron orbits is going to be a bit of a joke. What that does mean is that Firestorm also has control over at least three of the forces in nature. If he can force nuclei to change from one to the other, then he's got to be able to control the strong and weak nuclear forces. If he can rearrange the molecular bonds, he's also got to be able to control the electromagnetic force. So he's got the ability to do this, which means he should also have the ability to turn stable matter into unstable matter. So if he really wanted to, you know, he could basically turn things into nuclear weapons. The bombs that were dropped, or the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, was powered by a one kilogram sphere of a particular isotope of uranium. And this is an unstable isotope. If you have a one kilogram sphere of this specific isotope of uranium, it's going to blow. We don't see it happening in nature because when you see a natural deposit of uranium, there's small amounts of this isotope and larger amounts of more stable isotopes. A lot of the unstable ones have decayed over millennia since they were created. And we'll probably talk about the creation of matter in another podcast. But That's all it takes. If you have one kilogram of this, it'll go. The bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima basically had a one kilogram sphere of this isotope of uranium split into two parts, and it just had a mechanism that clamped them together and kept them clamped together long enough for the reaction to take place on its own. So the blueprints to that bomb are actually pretty easy to obtain, and it's a simple enough device to build that difficult part is getting the radioactive fuel. But if Firestorm's powers work as described, all he needs is more than a kilogram of material, and he can rearrange that into a one kilogram sphere of this isotope of uranium, and basically turn this into another Hiroshima right then and there. So he should have a tremendous amount of power if he chooses to apply it. Now, thankfully, he's a hero, not a villain. If he's a hero, he's probably not going to be setting off nuclear bombs where he goes. If he's a villain, well... We're basically protected by his sense of self-preservation, and that's about it. So the question that we have left is, well, how do the powers work? Can he make it work as they are in the comics? So in the comics, they say the total energy is the same. As I said, with binding energies, you're not going to get a perfect match, but you can get very close. When you're talking about large quantities of nuclei, if Firestorm can do this, he's got to be able to manipulate all the forces. He's got to be able to have some control over E equals MC squared. He's going to have energy. So he can get very, very close to having the same mass there, and the little bit of energy he's got left over can basically be converted to other forms of energy. So, you know, it could be in the electron orbits. Some of the electrons would be in higher energy orbits and naturally drop down, which means it would glow through heat, or it could be a little bit of excess thermal energy. So we should be able to get close enough that after transmuting these elements, there's an almost imperceptible change in temperature. So it's the kind of thing Professor Stein might be able to measure when he's tested the powers in the labs, not the kind of thing you're going to notice in a field combat situation because the difference would be that subtle. So how would he be able to manipulate these? That's something that I couldn't begin to approach how you can think about manipulating these forces and turn into manipulating them. That's got to be the fundamental piece of his transmutation powers. And that's just the magic comic book. It works that way, single point of suspension of disbelief. If you've got that piece... And he can manipulate at least three of the forces in nature. In which case, there's a story to be written about why he can't manipulate gravity or discovering that he can. Once you have that piece in place, then you can tell Firestorm stories exactly as they play out. You can sit down and say, aha, so he can manipulate these elements. And the powers do work as perceived. What it means is there's got to be a lot going on sort of behind the scenes. Because, you know, Firestorm... He's not a dumb guy by any stretch of the imagination, but it takes a mind far beyond anything the human race has ever developed in order to keep track of exactly where each of these particles has to go and how these molecules are built and how to make these things stable. So there's some suspension of disbelief going on, but this is one of the cases where insofar as they've tried to explain his powers, the science is sound. So that wraps it up for this month's Comic Book Physics. Join us the last Wednesday of every month as we go through new topics. Again, suggestions can always be sent to Bureau42podcasts at gmail.com, or you can post comments, you know, where you find these, if you find them linked on Facebook or through Bureau42 itself. Um, and as of this week, these podcasts are now available through Stitcher. At this point, four of the five podcast feeds that come through Bureau42 are available on Stitcher. So Common Book Physics is available. The master audio feed with everything is available. The big screen Batman series that was silver screen Superman and will be eventually uh, silver screen superheroes, that's available. At this time though, the X-Files retrospective podcast is not quite available. Uh, Doctor Who 50 and 50 is complete and that's available there. The X-Files podcast has been submitted to Stitcher. At the time of this recording, it hasn't been approved yet. So probably will show up. You can always find those episodes in the Bureau 42 master podcast feed. So thank you for listening and please send in any suggestions you have for future topics.